right, everyone. So welcome again. This is Christy Balsell speaking, and it's October 13th, 2015, and um, this is our autism Q&A, which we do, we try to do about quarterly, and um, again, I mentioned earlier in the call that if you're interested in getting updates about this call, send an email to us at autism at mitoaction.org with your info, and we'll add you to that list so that you can get updates. So there are some um, other ladies who are helping us co-chair the call today, so I'm going to give you guys a chance to introduce yourselves a little further, and um, and then we'll dig into the content. At this point, I am not muting everyone on the call um, so that we all have the chance to truly have more of a discussion, but I will tell you that if you're in a place where you have background noise and I know a lot of us multitask, you can use star six to mute and unmute your own line. So that's a good option. Or, of course, if you have a mute button on your phone, that works, too, even in this conference call. But you can just use star six to mute, but don't forget to unmute also if you want to make a comment so we can hear you. So I'm going to ask the ladies who are helping to co-chair to tell a little bit more about themselves and their relationship to mitoautism, as I think they bring a lot to the table. And then Mary Beth, who is our coordinator for the Mito 411 support hotline is going to take us through the um, overview of what Dr. Wallace talked about, and then we'll just um, go from there with some open discussion. Um, Alyssa, have you joined us on the call? Yep, I'm on. Hi. Welcome. Good to hear your voice. Um, Alyssa, if you don't mind going first, since you were, this this, um, call was really, you know, your child in the beginning and your inspiration, if you would introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you, you know, bring to the group, and then um, we'll have the other ladies who are helping us co-chair introduce themselves next. Okay. Uh, my name is Alyssa Davy, and we are in Connecticut. Um, I have three children. I have um, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and an 8-year-old. And um, what brought me to um, the mitochondrial community is actually our youngest son who was born uh, with a lot of initial problems uh, that looked essentially metabolic in nature. And then right as um, our youngest was, you know, getting a full workup for stat neurology and all of that, my middle son was actually having a developmental plateau. It wasn't that he regressed into autism, but he had many, many autistic features and just wasn't making any more motor progress or anything like that. So, you know, it was an interesting uh, journey for us because it was actually, uh, you know, our baby who was a metabolic baby um, who helped sort of, um, you know, paint a roadmap for us for our older son who was developing autistic features, who was uh, pedantic and lining things up and hyperlexic and show walking and chronic diarrhea for two years and just a lot of autistic symptomology. Our, our youngest looked much more medically fragile. Um, but then as a family, as we began to understand that it was the same uh, something for both of them, their lab work was very, very similar, even though their presentation to, you know, us and the doctors was very, very different. So even I just had a genetics appointment this uh, past week, and their lab work is, like, almost identical. So I find it interesting in terms of the way, you know, a a child can look metabolic in nature or a child can look autistic in nature, and, um, you know, the, the labs look very, very similar. So 
Um, you know, I actually had come to Christy. Now, Christy, what do you think? Is it like six years ago? I'm losing my it's, it's been a while. Listen, I mean, it's kind of crazy, actually. But, yeah, it's been some years. <laughs> yeah. And I asked Christy for some space at Mito Action that we could introduce this group to help people understand that, you know, this metabolic condition also overlaps with autistic symptomology. And she was gracious enough to give me an area to put all of the things that I was looking for and did not exist when I was trying to help my own children. So that's sort of what brought me to Christie and to Mito Action, and we've been able to build, I think, a nice resource for families in terms of the Mito cocktail and lab work and, um, you know, all the all the various um, comorbidities that go along with this, right, the GI issues, the immune dysregulation, that kind of stuff. So. Um, something that I had um, written an article about, which is actually on the Mito Action um, Autism page. Um, I, Christy, do you have the date of that, of when we did um, the mitochondrial toxicity? Yeah, let me look back at Melissa. And for anybody who wants to remember to bookmark that page, it's mitoaction.org slash autism. And that will take you to a whole new menu on the left that has a, a bunch of resources worth browsing. So what I had realized as, you know, I was moving along with, with my, my two boys, and, and it took us two years to really get a, a diagnosis written on paper that helped us with advocacy for the two boys. But, um, you know, this, this idea that there are many pharmaceutical medications that have known mitochondrial toxicity that I really should most likely be avoiding if necessary in a crisis scenario with my boys. And so what I did was take a look at what was out there. Um, Catherine Sims had done a nice um, telecast with my reaction and Dr. Dykin's book and some other things and put together a list. And um, it's actually, um, Dr. Wallace has a slide too, which is presented a little bit differently, where it actually lists um, the complex that a particular pharmaceutical medication um, affects, which I find interesting. But I tried to do a similar sort of um, you know, chart for people um, so that if you're, if you're being prescribed a medication and you have a mitochondrial dysfunction or a concern about mitochondrial toxicity, you can look at that chart and see if there's any data that I was able to find. I'm not saying it's totally comprehensive, but I did really try to scour many different resources. Dr. Bruce Cohen had um, done a webcast. Um, of, of the, what we knew thus far to try to put it all in one place for people. I don't think Dr. Wallace's um, slide has as many things as, as the one that I wrote prior, but um, just to give you an idea, take a look at that if you, you know, are prescribed. Yeah, so so I, found, I found it, Alyssa. Let me tell people how they can find it, too. Again, just make note for you guys to find it. So it's it was April 2014 when we talked about that. And if you just, in the search box on MyOaction's homepage in the upper right-hand corner, search the words autism, toxicity, it's the first hit on the search results. It says April 2014, and you can... Um, and Alyssa's name is on there in her um, really excellent summary with some excellent links additionally, too. Okay, great. 
Thank you, Alyssa, and not only for introducing yourself, but for all that you do to, you know, keep keep this group going, and um, we appreciate you and your insight. Yes, and um, I want to thank I want to thank Christy Weiss too, who was able to help um, get um, Dr. Wallace to come to my direction because I think that's a, a great resource too for people now. Totally agree. So, Christy, how about you introduce yourself next, since um, Alyssa's passing the torch here to you anyway. So, go ahead, and you can introduce yourself for us. Great. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, Christy. Um, my name is Christy Weiss. Um, I am a mother, first and foremost, um, to two, two children. And um, my youngest uh, daughter uh, is suspected of mitochondrial disease. And um, I come to this through, I guess, a different pair of lenses um, in this, that I have a background in chemistry. And so as we went down um, kind of our medical path and our medical journey, uh, we were seeing our daughter react um, to different things in her environment, um, pharmaceutically, um, immunologically, um, that just weren't quite making sense to us in the early days. So that led me down the path of kind of looking into what else might be going on uh, with her. And so um, at this point, we do not have a genetic diagnosis, which I guess adds a little bit more um, fuel to the fire that there might be something more going on um, than meets the eye to mitochondrial disease. And um, and learning that uh, he was a toxicologist and looking at this from a toxicological point of view. And so I just reached out to him. I guess it's probably been about a year ago now and and spoke with him and and realized that he he was coming out with a paper this year um, and that uh, asked him if he would be willing to willing to share this in a greater audience, and, and that's uh, connected him with Christy Balfeld and and led to the um, conference call that they, or webinar that, they, that was just a couple weeks ago. Um, so I I really um, have have found it very interesting looking into this uh, to the toxicological side of things. Um, I have a blog where I've shared some of my research that I've done. It's called babyfoodsteps.com, and I've, I've come up with a, a mitotoxic series on there because it, it turned out that as, as our daughter reacted to things, I, I headed to the medical literature to see if there was any connection to the suspected mitochondrial disease that she had, and I was really shocked to find that there were a lot of connections um, to these certain toxins in the mitochondria. So, I, I put that out there so, to share with other parents, so um, feel free to feel free to look at that. That's that's available as well. And I'm I'm so blessed to have found this this group and Mito Action in general, and then in this Mito Autism group um, because our daughter was ex- exhibiting some signs of autism in very early days, and with changes in diet in her environment, um, those autistic symptoms and behaviors went away. Um, and so I'm really thankful to the mothers in this group and everyone that shared. Um, that has helped help lead me to, to understand the connection between the two. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Christy, for that introduction and for all that you do to help as well. So appreciate it. Um, okay, um, Kathy, will you introduce yourself next? Hi, my name's Kathy Rivers. Um, I live near Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I've had three kids with mitochondrial disease. Um, my youngest son um, was diagnosed with full-spectrum autism at the age of two, um, but he also had uh, food allergies, um, inflammatory bowel disease, epilepsy, um, hypotonia, motor delay. So he was kind of an autism plus kid. And we ended up um, exploring mitochondrial disease because his two older siblings 
although both had very different presentations, were also kids who had medical issues. Uh, my middle child was uh, globally developmentally disabled and had cerebral palsy and had a host of severe medical problems, um, including cardiomyopathy and severe epilepsy. Um, she had a G-tube. She was on oxygen. Um, she actually died a year ago. But she was a much more kind of metabolic, multi-organ system failure kind of kid. Um, and my oldest child had severe hyperactive impulsive ADHD, uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome, um, now has um, ataxia vertigo, sensory neural hearing loss. So it's like putting together pieces of the puzzle. You know, there were a lot of different aspects of mitochondrial disease um, and I'm an affected adult as well. Um, my symptoms are more retinal disease and neuropathy issues. So we all look very different, which is actually not uncommon in families with mitochondrial disease. We do not have a genetic diagnosis yet, although we're putting together different pieces and will probably be considered polygenic in etiology once we finally get there. Um, but I was very interested in this um, mitochondrial toxicity, um, especially because of the fact that my son regressed into autism in that developmentally sensitive time frame of, you know, toddlerhood. Um, and with a lot of uh, both mitococktail and special diet and applied behavioral analysis, he's done quite well in terms of his development and has actually lost his behavioral diagnosis of autism. So that this chemical stuff is malleable. You can make changes in it, which is very exciting if you have a kid with autism, the thought that you can do something to positively impact your child's development. Um, so that's my story, and so I've been along for the ride. Alyssa and Christy have been doing all the work for this mitoautism group. I actually uh, trained as a pediatrician as well, although I've been home with my kids for over 15 years now. So I don't know if I consider myself a pediatrician anymore, but it certainly helped to have the medical perspective in terms of being able to navigate the system and figure out what was going on to help my kids. Thank you, Kathy. Um, Great to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, okay, Christine, I'll have you introduce yourself next, please. Go ahead. Okay, great. Hi, everyone. I'm Christine Cox. I am the Director of Outreach and Advocacy with MitoAction. I'm also the mother of um, two children. My daughter, who is, the, um, who is eight years old, has a mitochondrial disorder um, that is Sounds a lot like some of the other folks that you have heard. Um, she had a, a PDD NOS diagnosis when she was younger, um, also had some GI presentations, some dysautonomia, some other things. So she was one of those kids who was kind of um, had a lot going on. And interestingly, as, as we also have uh, had her, her mitococktail supplementation um, and started to, uh, to really pay attention to a couple of other variables. She's done quite well and has also lost her diagnosis. Um, so you'll find the theme here. <laughs> That's not to say that it's always a guarantee, but it's definitely something that I think can be, can be improved, um, depending on the kid. So, um, that's been, that's been um, a really interesting thing for us. So I've been very interested as well in the toxicity um, component. I want to. I'm going to keep my introduction pretty short because I think we want to leave plenty of time for discussion of that. But um, 
to say that I've traveled this path with these other ladies is very true. They've been a tremendous support, and I'm so glad that we continue to have these calls. So, um, so thank you, Christine. Yeah, thank you, Christine. Thank you for Christine as well. And um, and then Mary Beth, I'm going to have you introduce yourself and then take us right into the um, overview um, of Dr. Wallace's presentation on toxicity. And then from there, you know, we'll just um, have some discussion. And, and Alyssa, I know you have some ideas that you want to share specifically as well. So Mary Beth, go ahead. Great. I want to say hi to everybody. I am Mary Beth Collinger. I, as Chrissy said earlier, am involved in the MITO 411 program. I coordinate the volunteers and um, just kind of keep track of the calls. I've been doing that, again, for a number of years. I, I don't even have that number and thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I have family members with mitochondrial disease, and although we do not have the autism component, we have multi-generational um, disease that um, everyone finds very interesting. So um, that is my tie to mitochondrial disease. I am a nurse by trade, and I was a pediatric nurse and have now um, sort of given my time over to MitoAction, actually. So it's been a very good experience to be able to still use my nursing degree and skills and um, in an area that is in need and also that I'm quite invested in. So it's a good experience for us too. Very bad. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy it. So um, all right. So, even... so Mary, oh, sorry, Mary Beth. Go ahead. No, I'm done. I was just going to say Mary Beth has been um, helping put together some of the written summaries, which um, I used to do. And as I got busier, kind of you know, with the organization growing, um, asked Mary Beth to help. So you know, anytime you hear a teleconference, there is a written summary pending. And and when you search for keywords on the website, then you'll go and you'll be able to find not only the podcast where you can listen to that on iTunes and follow the slides or listen to it online, but then. Um, for most of them, we're, we either already had or are working on the written summary component, and that's something you can print as well. That you could um, it's set up so that you can print it without all the you know other wrapper of the website showing up, so that you could share it. So Mary Beth um, helped us with this most recent summary, so I asked her to take us through the highlights of that presentation. And if it interests you, I do encourage you to go listen to Dr. Wallace's talk. It's the most recent post on the homepage under the most recent news on the blog, and it's very much worthwhile. So go, take it away, Mary Beth. All right, here we go. Well, I know most of us, when we think of mitochondrial disease, we think of the, the mitochondrial and the nuclear DNA mutations, and that's why everyone gets those genetic blood tests and skin biopsies and all, you know, cheek swabs to find that genetically caused mitochondrial disease. But as we all know, we don't always come up with that. So Dr. Wallace really focused on non-genetic causes or somatogenic causes of mitochondrial disorders and dysfunctions. The, they both very closely resemble each other, whether it's genetic or acquired, um, but the acquired are caused by some agent, drugs, environmental, or occupational chemicals. Um, but they're both progressive, they have the same metabolic phenotypes, and without a lot of testing, the average person would not be able to tell which one you had just by looking at you. Um, I thought it good to mention that Dr. Wells is a toxicologist, and he devotes his career to studying the adverse effects of chemicals on living organisms. 
So that's his focus. They flood, you know, cells with these chemicals and kind of see what happens within the mitochondria or other parts of the cell and determine whether something is toxic. Um, it's also good to keep in mind, I think most of us think of toxic as poison, and I think that all of us need to realize that toxicity sort of is a, a graph, and at low levels, a drug that might be toxic at very high levels is not really as toxic. So I, I, I had the same thing where I thought, oh, the skull and bones, you know, toxic poison. But um, we can take some drugs that are toxic in some degree safely as long as we're taking the right dose and are monitored and things like that. So I just thought that was good to keep in mind. Um, so you all know that every cell has many mitochondria depending on the bioenergetic needs of the organ system that that cell belongs to. So skin cells don't really need a lot of energy, so they have much fewer mitochondria than, say, liver or muscle cells. So that also can sort of tell you where your symptomology might be strongest when you encounter a toxin. So if you take a toxin or exposed to a pesticide, it's probably going to see things like the muscle fatigue or the liver or maybe neurological symptoms before you might have a skin issue unless you poured it on your skin or something. Um, so the interesting, the most interesting part of Dr. Wallace's discussion to me was how involved creating energy is, how many steps it takes, and how many points along the way something can go wrong to either inhibit or just plain old stop the production line. And that was an eye-opener for me, even though I know the Krebs cycle and all the chains and the complexes, to think, holy cow, this can be totally disrupted at many places along, along the path to creating energy. So he took us through many of those points of um, inner inhibition or someplace where this chain could just be broken and stop good ATP production. So we will review some of those that he brought up to us. Um, so ATP is the cell's energy, and that is made through those five complexes that we hear of, complex one, two, three, four, five, um, in that electron transport chain. That chain needs 42 different proteins to work properly. So any of those proteins that get messed up along the way is going to hamper the ability of that electron transport chain to work and ultimately to make ATP. Um, so most of these proteins are encoded in our nuclear DNA. Um, so if there's a mutation there that stops the production of any of those 42 proteins, then the whole chain is really going to start lagging, become dysfunctional, or if it was a, you know, fatal mutation, it would stop working altogether. Um, there are great slides where he mapped out the different proteins and which complex they're in, um, and they're colorful and easy to follow, so I do recommend looking at his slides as well. Um, so the somatogenic etiology of mitochondrial disorders, which he terms mitochondrial toxicity, really describes, as I said, that pharmacological, environmental, or occupational exposures which really hurt the cell's ability to produce energy. And he starts with chemical targeting to the mitochondria. And after an exposure to any chemical, whether it's a drug or an environmental chemical, 
it's interesting that these chemicals are not distributed equally throughout the cell. There is an extra concentration, a bioconcentration, at the mitochondrial cell membrane, which really increases the likelihood that a reaction will occur there. Typically, it's not a reaction that you want. It's an adverse reaction. The reactions that we want are for hydrogen to be pumped in and out of the cell to create a nice uh, gradient, which is needed to make energy. When we substitute the hydrogen for some unwanted chemical, that unwanted chemical is not going to be helpful in making ATP, and therefore you get dysfunction. Um, the more of the chemical that's present, the more likely that a reaction, a bad reaction will happen. Um, there is also an electrical potential at the cell membrane due to these hydrogen ions, especially in complex one and four, where our body works to pump the hydrogens outside of the membrane because they're positively charged, and it makes a gradient, and that's called potential energy. I don't know if you guys remember. I know I heard a few chemists out there, and that is critically important for this whole complex one through five to work. This gradient creates this energy on the inside that makes all the other reactions happen. Um, so positive charges will want to flow back into the mitochondria to reestablish that equilibrium because your body always wants equilibrium. Um, the movement of those hydrogen ions also makes the membrane outside more acidic and the membrane inside more basic, creating another gradient. So bodies always want equilibrium, even though they fight to push those hydrogens out to create a disequilibrium, really the body works to then restore it. Um, so the positively charged cells are drawn from the inside of the cell, and they are accumulate preferentially in the mitochondria, and they run the risk of causing dysfunction in energy production if these chemicals are to have that positive charge. I'm not sure I said that clearly. So when we have positive charged chemicals, they accumulate right at that mitochondrial membrane, and they really run that risk of messing up our energy production by substituting themselves from those instead of the hydrogen atoms. And it's interesting that all of your um, heavy metals, if you look lead and all of those, they have two positive charges. And so they are ready to jump into that mitochondria inside of the cell in place of the hydrogens because they're positively charged and they're drawn right in there. And they sometimes compete with the hydrogen and they win. And they get inside the cell instead of the hydrogen and they do damage. Um, he also talked a little bit about uncoupling. And that was really part of phospholiferation where it's, they consider energy to be uncoupled when more energy is needed to produce energy than energy is produced. So if I have to spend, you know, 6 ATP to make 3 ATP, that's never going to be a productive use of energy. So that's when he mentioned uncoupling. I just want to explain what that was. Um, Let's see. The uh, I also liked the description of the substrate delivery, substrate delivery and mitochondrial toxicity. Um, he did say that if substrates needed for the electron chain are not available, the cells will starve, and then of course you won't make good ATP. And I like to, to think of this as somebody baking. The substrates are really your ingredients. 
And if you don't have flour to make your muffins, no matter what you do with the salt and the baking soda and the whatever else you're putting in there, brown sugar, you're really not going to get a muffin out of that. Or if you do, it's really going to be a pretty weak and soggy muffin. So that is what he is saying. Some people use the example of a factory. If you're making cars and no one delivers your tires, you're not going to have a functional car at the end of the day. So he went through all of the substrates for complex one through five. For example, NADH is a good substrate for complex one and four. And if they are inhibited by a drug or a pesticide, then the whole line of production is hampered. And this can happen in the Krebs cycle with fatty acid oxidation. Um, the whole line, if we don't get good ingredients, we're not going to be making good energy. So that is considered an indirect inhibitor of mitochondrial respiration or through that um, respiratory chain by inhibiting the substrate delivery. There's also molecular targets for mitochondrial toxicity, and these are things that happen right on the gene level, like gene translation. When we translate genetic code into messenger RNA, that could become um, a little bit mixed up. We can also have protein translocation and assembly um, issues. If the movement of proteins within the cell doesn't work, then they don't get to where they need to be, then that's, um, that will hamper energy production. Um, and there's enzymes that help everything work, like the protease enzyme helps, um, it actually helps the clipping and movement of proteins from inside to the outside of the cell. And if those are hampered by drugs or some drugs that hamper protease enzymes, then again, everything will slow down. You will not make good ATP. Um, any chemical that changes the charge of the proteins outside of the cell will also depolarize that cell membrane, and the, then the proteins, again, will not be able to enter the cell because the, they've lost their ion gradient. So, again, the substrates will be there. The proteins are not there to produce the energy. It's not going to work well. Um, let's see. Uh, there's also issues that can happen through uh, mitochondrial DNA replication and translation. And, again, there's other enzymes like polymerase that helps individual nucleic acids form into a chain. If this doesn't work, if that is inhibited by any other toxins or chemicals, then we're going to get some toxicity and damage as well. Uh, he went on to explain about the NRTIs, which are the nucleus reverse transcriptase enzymes, and those are specifically designed to hamper the process, and they're used in AIDS patients who have HIV. And it works because the drug substitutes itself in for a nucleotide, but it's missing an important hydroxyl group, and therefore it can't make the change needed to replicate. So in that case, it, it's an effective anti-AIDS or anti-HIV drug because it stops the process of replicating. Um, so in that case, it's helpful. But if you overdo it, you can hurt a lot of your good cells as well. So you have to sort of play that balance game. Um, mitochondria also only have one of those same DNA polymerase, uh, polymerase that the HIV drugs are aimed at. So you can get that unwanted side effect of inhibiting your mitochondrial gen genome as well. 
Um, and another point of attack can be protein synthesis, and you make that through your messenger RNA. And uh, the ribosomes decode the RNA into proteins. The mitochondria only have one specific ribosome, and it's the same one that the bacteria have. The nuclear ribosomes have many different kinds of ribosomes. I think there's six, and so they're a little bit safer. But uh, mitochondria are believed to have been formed from early bacteria way back, you know, when we were all just little single cells. And so they share, mitochondria share the same single ribosome as bacteria. So when you take certain antibiotics that are aimed at inhibiting that specific ribosome, it can also damage your mitochondria. So tetracycline is in there, linazolid is in there, chloranthinol, phenicol is in there, um, but they they become mitotoxic because they hurt protein synthesis. Uh, let's see, Dr. Watts also went through other additional chemicals in, in, in our environment that are out there, cigarette smoke, air pollution, other herbicides, and other um, uh, chemicals that are out there. And he made a good point in saying, we're exposed to these things all the time, and we don't even know how toxic they are or what our exposures level are because they're not studied. No one, very few people are measuring your environment, going in your house and saying, yeah, you're getting, you know, this much air pollution from the cars on the street down, um, you know, for uh, whatever, 400 yards from your house. But the drugs that we take are heavily monitored and heavily tested and given to, you know, all different cells in the labs and, you know, animal models, moving to human models. So there's a lot more information known about the drugs you take, but we also shouldn't forget about all these environmental toxins that are out there. And then he, Dr. Ross, concluded with a hazard versus risk um, summary, and uh, he said that um, mitochondrial toxicity represents a hazard that may or may not be a real risk under normal or intended exposure. And that's what I was trying to get it at the beginning. If in really high doses, something really could be hazardous, tox, you know, very high risk, but in an intended exposure at the correct dose, it actually could be of benefit. Um, he cautioned against overinterpretation of the data because that could really overestimate the real risk for the patient just because a chemical has a capacity or potential to interfere with mitochondrial function doesn't mean that adverse outcomes will invariably occur. Um, personally, I think that for the general population, maybe they can handle more of these sort of potentially toxic chemicals, drugs, than somebody with mitochondrial disease who already have mitochondria that are kind of struggling to stay above water. But that's just my personal feeling. <laughs> um, the degree of exposure is critical to your risk. Um, so uh, if there's a threshold of concern, that really has to do with how potentially toxic something is, and you need to really lay out all of the parts, risk, benefit, dose, exposure, and have that good discussion with your medical physician or your team and, you know, 
just be safe about it. And certainly past experience is good indicator if you've had a really hard time with a certain antibiotic or anesthetic or whatever in the past, I would, you know, certainly take that to be a real risk. Thank you, Mary Beth. Oh, you're right. Wonderful overview. And as as we can all hear, it's a lot of um, biochemistry, but I think what's going to be great about this discussion that's going to ensue now for the next, you know, 45 minutes or so is is kind of getting down to the practical experience and what we've learned about what what is causing problems and what we can do about it. So, Alyssa, I'll kind of hand that back over to you and, and Christy to um, spearhead that discussion with your experience and thoughts. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry I missed the beginning of the call to see if um, – like, do we have an idea of who we have on the call, Christy, in terms of what the group is uh, mostly – his parents who have kids with autism? Is that who we have on the call? Mostly, yes. We didn't go into in-depth introductions with everybody because of time, but we've got, you know, 10 or 12 folks participating who, um, you know, no guys said hello, so if they were there, they were lurking, and (laughs) mostly um, parents, although we do have um, at least one adult patient joining us as well who, um, you know, recognizes these issues even in adult-onset mitochondrial disease. Okay. All right. Sorry, I just I missed that. Um, I think you know I've talked to many families who in the autism community who really believe that early exposures, you know, maybe triggered the mitochondrial dysfunction that they saw in their children. Um, I can now look back at our own personal history and find moments where I said, "Oh boy, I wish I hadn't done that." Um, my middle son had 11 vaccinations all given on one day. Uh, he had 11 vaccinations given on one day with uh, not feeling well. He had a runny nose. He was covered in eczema. Um, looking back, that's something I wish I hadn't done as a parent. Um, I just think there was a vulnerability there. And, um, you know, everybody has their own personal opinions about vaccination. But um, my, my middle son, who uh, had a lot of autistic features, suddenly just, you know, declined at that point. It's very similar to the Hannah Poling uh, vaccine injury case in the sense that she was given a glut of vaccinations on one day and then cascaded into autistic symptomology. And that was a case that no one can dispute was one vaccine injury court, and she was found to have an underlying mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation defect of some type. And that is also our, our case as well. That That's what happened to my middle son. We didn't pursue it in vaccine injury court, but it's my personal feeling that 11 vaccinations given on one day triggered, you know, a, a whole host of following problems for my middle son. We were very fortunate because we had my younger son to kind of create a roadmap for him. So, um, you know, he's, He's cascading into autism. He's most likely going to be diagnosed PDD-NOS or something in that realm. Um, when we found out that my younger son had low carnitine, and so um, I just, for whatever reason, had a sense that if the little one had low carnitine, then my older son with autistic features probably did as well. And I just kept testing. So he had it. He had his carnitine tested, I think, twice 
and he always looked to be like in the lower third of the reference range. But then that third time, he was a little bit under the weather when we took it, and sure enough, he was really, really low. And so for our son who had autistic features, he only started making improvement once we got him on carnitine, and he was around two and a half at the time. Um, and, you know, carnitine is a major component of the mitochondrial cocktail and the mito community. I don't think we ever would have, no one ever would have tested my son for that had we not have had this younger, more affected-looking metabolic baby. Um, and so, you know, for us, this idea of environmental exposure triggering an increase in, you know, medical problems for, for him, it, I mean, his pancreas was just a mess. He had chronic diarrhea. It was mustard, sandy-colored stool that would literally run into his shoes and socks. He could, he just couldn't hold on to anything. And, um, you know, he had severe dysautonomia. Um, he would go down for a nap. I'd go in and, and, and wake him up, and it would look like he had just come out of the shower. He was so wet. Uh, with sweat on his head, his shirt, um, you know, so those were some of, like, the early medical things that we saw going on with him in addition to the autistic features, which were that he was hyperlexic, he was pedantic, he could tell you, you know, anything you wanted to know about any animal in the world, where it lived, what it ate, um, you know, and he's, he, he never was actually diagnosed PDDNOS, but he had an abnormal CAR score, and we had all these really concerning features um, that if we that if we hadn't been able to figure out that he was a mitochondrial in nature child, we just we we would have continued to cascade into a diagnosis. There's just no other place for us to go. But you know that that's why this topic to me is important because I think that's 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 an environmental exposure that could have been avoided in my child had we realized soon enough. I never would have given him 11 vaccinations on one day if I knew he had a mitochondrial dysfunction or a sensitivity to processing, uh, you know, environmental exposures. And my boys were the first 100 whole genome run in the country. And I think the most interesting thing we discovered about them from that is that they have cytochrome P450 single nucleotide polymorphisms in medication metabolism. And they not only have one, but they have two, which puts them into a highly susceptible risk group for processing medication. So, for example, warfarin, which is a medication given for cardiac conditions, if you were to give that drug at what would be a typical dose to my two boys with the two mutations that they have, it's likely they might they might die. It's just it's too much medication. So when when they know that these um, single nucleotide polymorphisms in medication metabolism exist, when you dose warfarin to these people, you give a much smaller dose because they can't process it correctly. You can very easily, you know, over-medicate them. And, you know, I have been talking to a lot of doctors, and I know that Richard Haas in California is concerned about medication metabolism enzymes in children with autism because I've spoken to him about it. 
but, you know, the NIH has no money right now, and grants, everybody's, you know, barely getting by, and I think it's low on everybody's priority to look at in this group of children, but for me, I think it's really critical because that's what we're talking about is a susceptibility to not um, be able to get rid of um, medications and chemicals that we come across in our environment, and so to me, it would make common sense that if you have these mutations in medication metabolism, you're not going to clear them out the way you should. It's an increased risk in those kids. Um, so that's what we know about our boys. Because we know that, I, you know, I'm very careful about what we expose them to as much as we can. It's pervasive in our environment now. It's in our food. It's in our water. It's in our air. It's in our homes. It's in our medical care. So, you know, it can become very overwhelming to kind of green your home, um, but I feel like it's a part of good management in these children, and, you know, that's why I wanted to pull all the data together about the known pharmaceuticals, uh, both for my family and other families in our similar situation, and why, you know, talks like, you know, Christy was able to get here with Dr. Wallace is so important because I do think it needs to be on everybody's radar when you make treatment selections for your kids as well. So. Thank you, Alyssa. Um, Christy, do you have anything you want to add, um, given your experience in this area as well? Um, I just had a couple questions I'd love to throw out for discussion. Um, that I sounds awesome. It was so interesting. One of the things I picked up on um, listening to Dr. Wallace's talk is there were a couple times he said that these um, mitochondrial conditions can be indistinguishable, indistinguishable from each other. And I just, that leads me to wonder how do we know whether it is genetic or whether it is. And I know, Christy, also if you asked that question, I think, towards the end of the Q&A for Dr. Wallace's mm -hmm. talk, so I how how do we know? And I, I don't I don't think there's an answer to it, but I, I would love to hear everybody else's input on um, their experiences. Um, I think I think what I found medically is that everyone goes to genetics first, and I think that's where we are in the mitochondrial mainstream medical world is that everyone assumes genetics first. Um, I know that's where we've been for our daughter for the probably the last five years, as we've been told it's genetic. Um, and and it's really been on us as parents to kind of look into these other things um, as far as uh, toxicology and exposures. And, and really, we wouldn't have looked at them had we not seen her react in front of our eyes to um, Windex or nail polish remover or dry cleaning chemicals. And I guess because of my background in chemistry, I thought, well, you know, what's what is it in, in these fumes that she's inhaling and then, and then going into a neurological response? What is it about these that could be doing this? And, and that led me down, down those rabbit holes. But I would, I'm just curious about everybody else on the call's experience if they've seen their child also have reactions to certain, certain you know, chemicals, certain toxins. And um, and do you do you really know? Is it is it is it always genetic or is it or is it um, a combination of both? All right, so everybody remember if you use star six, you have to unmute your phone with star six again. And um, what a great springboard for discussion just to share your experience as well as further questions. So um, who'd like to make a comment? This is Erica. Um, I'll try to be brief. I, I, um, I, um, I 
And I, as far as the, there are some very, very severe genetic mitochondrial um, conditions of, we all, the people know so well that, that we're, where they barely support life at all. And, but a step in, was anything less severe in genetics? I think on the one hand, it would be impossible to rule out environmental influence. Because we live in a world, um, you know, it's hard to, I mean, if somebody is so horribly and severely affected by a genetic, on the one hand, thing that hardly permits life, I mean, just the genetics are almost, I mean, you don't have a chance almost past the genetics, so I'm not trying to exaggerate the environment part, but beyond that, even if you have a significant vulnerability, you you exist in, in the world, and you, uh, and I guess to flip it over, also, if you have, um, you, if you see effects before, if you see effects, um, it's hard to know to what extent there is genetic vulnerability. And and it would be hard also, I think, to rule that out, that you're not born with a different vulnerability and then you could get hit by environmental, uh, by, by environmental events. I am grateful that although we're not very much affected, um, we found low carnitine at a, a year and a quarter and both my son and I were born quite small. My son smaller than me in our good room growth retardation um, and and um, bad colic and psychiatric illness going back through generations in the family. But we weren't, we weren't very affected. I am still grateful that based on knowing about that low carnitine, um, I asked not to do a not to do quote unquote catch up vaccinations on one day, and I'm very grateful that the nurse practitioner there said, you know what, I don't believe in giving uh, extra vaccinations, a whole bunch of vaccinations at once. So let's throw them out. And that was I, I I hardly heard of any of this stuff at that point, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that. Like just as a, I mean, I don't know how useful this is probably too theoretical and in the sky and all that, um, but in in a sense. Um, this, except for the extreme examples, which I imagine you could have, ex- you can have, ex- you can have an example that's clearly pretty much en- uh, something environmental that happens that would, that would be horrible for anyone, or on the other hand, a genetic syndrome that you that can bear, that, that that just is horrible for anyone. In between, I don't think we can we know we we can't say that our environment didn't harm us or that we don't have genetic vulnerabilities. And most important, Kathy, I didn't know about your daughter. I'm I'm so very sorry that you lost her a year ago. Okay, thank you. Thanks for sharing that, Erica. Anybody else have comments or additional well, questions? I do. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Susan Martinez. I actually have two children who are diagnosed with autism at an early age, and we have the genetic component with the NRXN1, which the autism speaks, speaks about the genetic component as far as uh, autism and, you know, and whatever, but they were at the uh, mitochondrial disease second, second hand, which obviously the mom has a component, which I do also, secondary. But anyways, I believe my children were exposed to the environmental factors. One of my sons was genetically tested at an early age, and he didn't have the... Uh, genetic component, and obviously when my third son, my second son was diagnosed with autism, we did the whole uh, microwave genetic component, and he had a different gene, so obviously it was an epigenetic, but some of the genes were turned on, 
So we found out that our son kind of regressed off at that same period with the environmental exposure because of mitochondrial dysfunction. That is our story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it seems like there's a lot of um, similarities, obviously, between these, you know, and um, I think it's frustrating. I mean, one of the questions that I asked of Dr. Wallace, and he, you know, is not a clinician and, and obviously knows so much, but um, we just don't have any answer, I think, on how do you make the decision, you know, um, of what to give when there are so many things that we know are toxic. And I think one of the keys and one of the reasons why we actually have this group is that um, we feel like it's really important for the people in the autism community to recognize if your child has been diagnosed with autism but there's something else going on, you know, at least be aware of the precautions that you would take for potential mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts about that and in your experience and how you make decisions about using medications that, you know, might have some toxicity but maybe, you know, are needed. Christy, I, I just want to say, this is Alyssa, I feel like when you talk to a toxicologist and they establish safe standards, those are in healthy individuals. Anybody who's on this call does not have a healthy child or, you know what I mean, a mother or sister or, or themselves. They're, they're already, you know, functioning in reduced capacity for wellness. And, you know, that's part of my personal problem with the vaccine schedule at this point is that, you know, there's an assumption that every child, every newborn baby is working from the same baseline. And I think once we realized that our children were not well, there was something wrong, something unusual, atypical um, about our children, we should have immediately been looking to reduce burden. And I think that's true. I have an adult friend who is just diagnosed with ALS. It's the same thing with that. I have, an, I have another good friend who has a glioblastoma brain tumor. They're not well. They need to start looking at environmental exposures, way to peel back burden to um, improve wellness and health. And, you know, I think in the beginning when I started this journey, maybe I was much more closed lip about it, feeling like, well, everybody's got to come to that decision on their own. And now I'm just like, no. I think everybody needs to do that, whether you have cancer or ALS or a child with autism or a child with, with presumed mitochondrial dysfunction um, because it, it's, it's, it's an easy thing in the sense to do that it's something you can try that you might see measurable gains from. I'm not saying it's functionally easy, right? I mean, it, it's a lot of time and energy to green your home cleaning products and, and usually more costly and those kinds of things. But I think it is something that can be done when you're frustrated with the treatment course. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I would agree with Alyssa. I think there's some, this is Kathy, I think there's some very practical risk-benefit analyses you have to do sometimes as well. Um, I'll give you an example with my son who had inflammatory bowel disease and was on sulfazalazine, which is an aspirin derivative medication, and I had a discussion with Dr. Cohen. He was probably, I don't know, five at the time, my son. Okay, this is a mitotoxic drug. 
should we stop it? And he said, well, but if he has inflammation from untreated inflammatory bowel disease, that's going to be more toxic to his mitochondria than perhaps the medication is. So let's see if we can get by with the minimal dose of that particular medication. Let's look and see if there's other medications we can use. But I think you need to look at all these things and be careful because, um, I'll give you my vaccine example um, because we stopped vaccinating our kids after two of our kids had adverse reactions. But when my daughter went to college and was going to be living in the dorm, I kind of figured the the risk of meningococcal meningitis was great enough that I would give her that vaccine on a very healthy day. You know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to give it to her on a sick day, and I gave it to her when she was already on the Mito cocktail. So I tried to kind of hedge my bets and make her in the best status she could possibly be, but I feel like I'm constantly weighing and balancing things. I think that's a key element, this is Christy, with the um, balancing act is buffing up the system metabolically, you know, before you pose any kind of threat. And so um, there's some really good... Uh, podcasts and protocols and summaries about what to do on a sick day on the website that I encourage you guys um, to search for. If you just search, like, sick protocol, that will take you to those. And the theory, then, is um, kind of similar in that, you know, with a mitochondrial dysfunction or disease, you're operating you know, kind of below capacity all the time. And so the body is actually pretty amazing at how much it can adapt. But you impose any additional threat, any additional demand, and then that's when things start to unravel. And so that may be the immune response from a vaccine. It could be the onslaught of fevers, which are part of that immune response. It could just be, um, you know, exposure to illness. You know, I mean, I think that it it could be traveling to a doctor's appointment actually is probably as risky as, you know, going to school because when you travel to the doctor's appointment, you're, you are exposing yourself or your child to a whole new, you know, area with potential germs and the fatigue and the stress if you have to have labs and so forth. And you're already operating below capacity all the time. So I feel like it's a constant effort to try to metabolically find as many ways as you can to support the system. And and it's tough because there's not a formula. You know, there's not a right answer. Mm-hmm. 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 What other questions and comments? Go ahead. Oh, no, just real quick. What I find interesting about the whole um, toxin-induced mitochondrial issues is that for a lot of geneticists right now, the current status is let's run genetic testing, and if we don't find anything, then we might call you clinical mitochondrial disease, but we're still not sure of what you have because they're not considering you know, that there are other things that could cause mitochondrial disease, like Dr. Wallace's article. Christy, you've, you've mentioned something about functional protein testing. Or Alyssa. Alyssa, sorry. Yeah, it was interesting. We had a genetics appointment, and, um, you know, uh, because we were the first 100 run in the um, genome, Baylor's actually going to rerun us. 
because the interpretation was so minimal in the beginning um, to see if something else comes up, which I find really interesting because it's been three years since they were run. So we're going to get a um, read of that to see if there's anything that they overlooked before that now they're finding. Um, and, and that is true of, of a lot of the genetic testing, right, is that you can have it, but the interpretation is difficult at this point. They don't really know what the result even means. So they're going to relook oh, Do you mean they're going to resequence? Sorry, I'm, I'm not a medical person. Are they going to resequence, or are they going to take the sequencing results and, and review the, and do like a literature review that, again, that applied your family because new things are known about a particular sequence. Exactly, to look at different mutations that they might have overlooked before, but now they're finding, you know, there's a pattern of this in kids with, you know, pervasive developmental delay or, you know, whatever our code was when we went in, you know, autistic features, global developmental delay, whatever. So, so we'll have that, but I was, but I had started a, a conversation with him about the, the genetic testing in general and what was new, what was coming down the road. Considering we don't have a genetic um, diagnosis at this point, and we're still curious to see what other factors might be impacting this. We know we have the um, cytochrome P450 single nucleotide polymorphisms in medication metabolism, but is there something else? And our geneticist said to me that they're um, they're working on testing for functional protein um, uh, assessment, which I find interesting because that's exactly what Dr. Wallace was talking about here. All the ways that the proteins can fail um, that affect mitochondrial function, and you know, um, I, I agree um, with um, you know the woman who did the the summary that there's a lot of other ways that mitochondria can fail in addition to it just being a genetic. Uh, mutation of some sort. So I found that really fascinating. So, you know, Dr. Wallace is talking about it. Our geneticist is talking about it. He didn't really have any great timeline for me in terms of when he thought that um, testing would be, you know, available to patients clinically, um, but that it is something that they're looking at doing. And it, it seems similar in the, in the sense to like a muscle biopsy in that you would have to select the tissue to test. Right. I mean, obviously, many tissues are difficult to test, and you you really couldn't test, say, like, you know, heart tissue if it was, you know, your 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 symptoms were primarily cardiac in nature or whatever. But um, it, it's something to to ask your geneticist about and and see if you can find any information about when that testing is going to become more readily available. Hi, Christy. Yeah. Hi. Hi, it's Lee. Can I make a comment on this? Of course. You don't have to ask permission. <laughs> okay. So I am driving. Actually, I have to go get my son from school because he leaves early. But anyway, I hope I, I, you can understand me. So on this protein, that's a very, very interesting thing because my son, Andrew, had a muscle biopsy. He was the first one who had one in 2009. And among all of the complexes, one, two, complex one, two, three, and five, they were really the oxfos had a severe deficiency. But a couple of the complexes had severe protein deficiency. Let's say the number of proteins to run those complexes were very, very low in his biopsy. And um, compared to my biopsy, which I had later, 
didn't show as much as those protein, diminished protein as it as did in his biopsy, which he was pretty much more severe than I at the time that he had his muscle biopsy. So the protein is a very, very interesting thing because, see, my son, like everybody's talking about, came from, from a mother that already had mitochondrial disease. We do have an mtDNA mutation um, identified already, but this mtDNA mutation didn't cause just such a severe disease like caused in my son. Um, but he came for me at an older age when I had my daughter, and let's say I was healthier with her, than later on in life when he came along. So I guess I do also believe, and I have complained, and I have filed, you know, court papers and so on, because I do believe that the 11 vaccines that he got at, you know, on at 16 months of age, he had vaccines at 13 months and another one is 16 months. And I think that that could have been the environmental cause for him that had this mtDNA mutation coming from me that caused him to have this deficiency, severely deficient in some of those proteins because that stands out for my biopsy, which for me, I have severe, I have moderate uh, atrophy, um, you know, in another other thing from my muscle biopsy, but he has those proteins that you're talking about. So I guess you can test uh, through muscle biopsy to see if a child has those proteins diminished. And, yeah, I do believe that vaccination sometimes, if you don't vaccine your child uh, who already is sick or has a pure, you know, a very low immune system, if you don't vaccinate at all, then you get the risk of the child getting the disease and, and die from it. But uh, we had a discussion with Dr. Schaffner, my husband and I, and we were very strong with him on that issue. And he said, well, I agree that for a child like yours that has mitochondrial disease and a background of mitochondrial disease, you should do one vaccine at a time, and you space it out. And in between, you give them lots of mitochondrial cocktail. You, you know, you do environmental things that, provide the, the background support for that child and vaccinate on that. Um, some vaccines, on my account, this is not for everybody, but I I do agree that some vaccines are very, very necessary. Like the flu vaccine, I'm not sure. I I don't do vaccine for my child for, and for me because I have reaction. I had a reaction to the Pneumovax severe. I end up in the ER. I guess my um, doctor sent out the, the report to CDC because of that. So he said never to get the vaccine again. So I guess parents really have to think about it. And, yes, do vaccinate, but vaccinate responsibly, you know. That, mm -hmm. That's my take. But and, on the, and the, the proteins, we did have that tested on our muscle biopsy, and that's what it shows for my son. And, Lee, I agree. I think in many of these families there's a genetic vulnerability, a sensitivity 
to vaccine because in my family, I have two other first cousins who had, you know, dramatic, profound, adverse reactions to vaccines and filed with vaccine adverse event reporting system with the VAERS system. So like you guys who are also saying 11 vaccinations on one day was not a great decision for your children, the same is true of us. That's exactly our story, but I also had other members of my family who had adverse vaccine events. And so then you start wondering, well, what's, is there a genetic relationship to that? When you have a whole family of people reacting poorly, is it perhaps these medication metabolism mutations or, or we're not looking in quite the right spot is, is what I'm wondering, right, for yeah, the genetic cause of it. Uh, you know, you refer to that uh, citrochrome uh, P450, is that the CYP? I, I don't have the names in front of me because I'm driving, but is that what you, uh, the polymorphisms that comes for medication metabolism on the 23andMe, is that what it is? There, there, some of them are tested there, yes. Uh-huh, okay, because it's interesting that I tested myself, but I did it for curiosity because we have plenty of genetic testing by several doctors, including Dr. Campbell, but um, interesting that I did 23andMe just because I wanted to know where um, my grandmother came from, from background, which is all the way from the Netherlands, but, um, and interesting that I do have this, uh, uh, you know, a double, uh, let's say, um, homozygous mutation for this citrochrome P450, which is medication metabolism, so mm-hmm. I wonder if that's the reason that I reacted so bad to the Neovax vaccine, but I mean it. It, it didn't affect my brain, like, um, uh, permanently, like, uh, you know, it did for my son, but he took much more vaccines than right. one. I took one Neovax, and I end up in the ER so severely that at the time I thought I was going to die from a, a headache, migraine medication, and vomiting, and I couldn't walk for two right. weeks. I was that laying was- down. You know, I slept downstairs because I couldn't go upstairs, walk upstairs. That was that severe. So I wonder if it has really those polymorphisms, if we should be checking, including kids with mitochondrial disease, if the doctor or mother doctor should, you know, start testing for that. I agree. This is Christy Lee's. I've looked into um, some of this and blogged about it, um, but there is some literature um, in the medical literature about smallpox vaccination and genetic SNPs for adverse reactions to smallpox vaccination. And I know that's not given anymore, not in the schedule, but it's interesting the um, genetic SNPs that were involved in that study um, include MTHFR, if, if individuals are familiar with that genetic um, mutation, methyl, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, which we hear a lot about folate um, and cerebral folate deficiency with mitochondria. And, um, and then also some immune um, SNPs, immune marker SNPs. So that's an interesting study if anybody's interested in looking that up. But there's definitely some research out there on that, maybe not with the current vaccination schedule um, as it's given for the CDC guidelines for children. But there is also some um, research being done currently at NIH, and maybe um, Christine or Christy can talk about it a little bit more, called the mini-study. Um, where they're looking at metabolic disorders and vaccination, specifically um, immune response and titers, um, Dr. McGuire. Yeah, Christine, do you want to talk about that? Uh, sure. 
So, Dr. McGuire, this is a really interesting study that he's doing, um, and actually they're still recruiting for it if anyone is interested, but um, essentially what they're doing is looking at whether or not children with, uh, with metabolic and mitochondrial disorders have trouble uh, creating, um, creating or, and maintaining their tigers and essentially their immunity to, uh, to various childhood diseases that they've been vaccinated for. So, um, so it's a little bit of a different flavor in that I don't really think that they're they're looking at the toxicity component, but they're looking more at whether or not the meta the, the metabolic disorder is um, affecting the ability of immune cells to retain that immune memory. That's essentially what they're looking at. So, um, but it is a very interesting study, and certainly it, it goes to show that yes, there is a um, <laughs> component of the immune system that is affected by these metabolic issues and mitochondrial issues. So when you add the toxicity in, then that becomes even more complicated picture. We do have information about that study on our website at mitoashen.org slash study if anybody is interested in looking further into that. Can you post that in the groups for us, Christine? That would be great. Would you? Excuse me? Say it again. Can you post it in the groups for us to read that study? In the Facebook group. I'll send you a DM on Facebook so I can get the study to read it. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. It, it, there's a, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do can that. I um, can I say one more thing? I think that it would be very important for, uh, for parents that have children that have metabolic issues, if they could really test the children for um, – immune uh, dysfunction or immune deficiency. Let's say if you have a low IgG like I did and my son did, we both are on IVIG now, immunoglobulin, because I think that's the part that also I have such a bad reaction to immunoglobulin because my immune system was so low and including the IgG. So that's another thing that parents can do you know, bring a child to an immunologist and, and have them tested before you load them with the vaccines, you know, if your immune system is normal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Lee. That's a, that's a very good point. And if you are, if you do feel like your child has some of those um, immunocompromised issues, then there are, are two talks by immunologists on our website, and both are very good. So if you just search... Um, immunity, immunology, um, immunofunction, and you would find those on the search box on our on our site. Um, Dr. Pacheco and then Dr. Walker um, more recently. So we're going to wrap up in about 10 minutes, so I want to be sure that we have time for um, any, you know, anybody who hasn't had a chance to ask a question yet or um, any additional comments. Go ahead. Sorry. Christy, can I just say one thing with Alyssa? Um, our youngest son, who looked very metabolic in nature as as an infant, was fully vaccinated to six months old on the American Academy of Pediatrics schedule, fully on time, the whole schedule. If you took his titers, he looks completely unvaccinated. 
His immune memory is just non-existent. He got all those vaccinations. He took in all the aluminum adjuvant. He took in all the formaldehyde adjuvant that are in those vaccines, and yet he doesn't have any benefit of the vaccination. So, you know. That's what happened to me. I suffered so much, and I got no immunity from the Nucovax. And the reason is my IgD was low. My immunity, my immune system was low. So that's when the parents have to really check on it, the immune system, because you get no benefits from it. Well, well and, and specifically on the flu vaccine, and I, I have a personal story with my father, but the flu vaccine actually has 25 to 75 micrograms of mercury in it, okay? That crosses the brain-blood barrier if you cannot detox it, detox it, so it makes perfect sense, you know, when you hear someone, you know, having a migraine and they have to go to the emergency room. I mean, the brain is becoming inflamed. So uh, my father, and Dr. Blaylock talks about this. He's a neurosurgeon. Um, he lost both his parents to Parkinson's. Um, he has many books out. Um, he goes all over speaking about this. But if you have five years of flu vaccines, he said you're on your way to Alzheimer's. Now, my father continued to get flu vaccines. But what happened to him was it, would, it went very slowly. He lost his balance. Like he had, he, he wasn't, he was having trouble like on the factory floors, they looked real shiny. So any floor that was shiny, he would, he would not feel comfortable with his balance. Well, you know, none of us knew what was going on. And of course they sent him to a podiatrist and, you know, put, gave him special shoes. And, you know, it was, it was totally nuts. And, you know, he also developed anxiety and they put him on medication and, some of the medication actually destroyed his mitochondria. So, you know, you see these people and they go from a cane and then they go to a walker and then they go to a wheelchair and the whole time they're getting flu vaccines. Um, and, I, I mean, I, I I really believe that a lot of the people in nursing homes, that's what's happened to them. And what's so ironic about it is they continue to get these flu vaccines while they're in the nursing home. Does anyone know if the mist is better or worse with that? My my son's pediatrician has had him for the past several years said, if you're going to do it, get the shot, not the mist. The reason, one reason he gave, I don't know if it's the only reason because he knows about his metabolic stuff too, but one reason he gave is that, that he's had wheezing episodes, not that many. Um, so does anybody know uh, well, um, the, if the mist is better or worse? Well, that actually, according okay. to the CDC whistleblower, which that's all going to come out, and I've seen some of the emails that have been going on in the CDC, and that actually is responsible for motor and verbal tics. And my niece actually did get the MISC, and she did develop a verbal tic. So, um, you know, when you're lowering oxygen, that, that makes perfect sense in regard to, you know, you're going to have breathing difficulties. So maybe it is worse than the shot. I realize it, it's maybe an absurd question. If both are horrible, then, you know. But well, for, better, I, for worse, my son has been getting the shot instead of the of mist. So. Well, I do think it's a, I think it is a, it's a difficult decision, but it's not, it's not black and white because um, it really depends, I think, on what your reaction has been to other vaccines. 
and that would help you make that decision. If you have not had the reaction to other vaccines, but you have more of the mito cascade of cis issues, you know, um, you teeter-totter with the dysautonomia, the littlest bit of fluctuation in temperature or getting overheated or missing a meal causes this cascade, then, you know, I worry about the the potential for five days of fever with the flu, that if you can attenuate that with having a, a flu shot, it's a very difficult decision. Um, Kathy, I wanted you to comment because um, from, my, I, from my recollection, the mist um, has more of the live um, virus, and that's why it's not recommended um, as opposed to the shot. Do you know off the top of your head, Kathy, if I'm right about yeah, what I'm remembering? The shot is killed virus. The mist is live virus, weak but live virus nonetheless. So if you have any kind of immunodeficiency, you should not get the mist. It's also contraindicated in people with asthma because it triggers reactive airway disease. Um, so the fact that the one lady's son was wheezing, her, her doctor would have said he shouldn't have had that. Yeah, so if you have any concerns about immunodeficiency, you should get the shot. Um, there is some... Thimerosal uh, free flu vaccine available. You can usually find it in pediatricians' offices for babies, but not all of them even have it because it costs more. It's single dose vials, the multi dose vials, which are the ones that you see in like CVS clinics and flu clinics all over the place. Those all have thimerosal as a, a bacteriostatic agent. It doesn't even completely kill bacteria and keep it sterile, it just kind of lessens the um, contamination of the vial, but in order to get thimerosal free, you've got to get the single-dose vials if that's the route that you want to go. It's worth asking after. Thank you. So I didn't know that was available with the with the. It with can the, be so difficult to find. Vaccine. At least we know it's available, but not. But hard. It sounds like not easily, um, not easy to get get a hold of. I know back when we were still doing the flu vaccines for our kids, um, our pediatrician had to kind of order it in for us and then hide her supply until we could get there. Um, wow. It's more expensive because it's single dose. Um, some pediatricians believe that it's the better way to go with the youngest children, and so they carry it. Um, not everybody does. And, um, and I just, yeah, I just want to hop in here. I'm philosophically, I'm having a very hard time with the flu mist because it says right on the uh, insert to that from the manufacturer that if a child is immunocompromised, they shouldn't receive that. So my concern is my son, who we know is immunocompromised, who is being required by the public school district to get that vaccination to be at school, and yet that child is shedding live virus for 28 days after they get it blown up their nose onto my kid who's immunocompromised, who is surely going to catch it from the kid sitting next to him, which actually just spreads the flu. So I, I just think... Are you in California? We're, we're in Connecticut. Oh, and they're, they're requiring the flu vaccine in school? Yes, they are. And so, you know, I think it's starting to become a, a philosophical issue when you when when we're making these generalizations that everybody should do something, everybody should get X Y Z. That's not the case. Everybody's an individual. I don't particularly want the kid sitting next to my child shedding live flu mist onto my child, right? My son missed sixty days of school in kindergarten from I think 
you know, have something that will spread through the flu mask. Do you know if he has low IgG or any kind of immune problems like that you can get it on a, a immunoglobulin, let's say, because that's a way that you can protect him to give him a better immune system so he's not going to get sick as much. Yeah, as much, right? I mean, once it's broken, it's hard to fix. I mean, we we do a ton of things, like Christy was saying, in terms of, like, daily immune support and, and boosting the immune system and, you know, all of that stuff. But I'm just saying, I, I don't know. For me, the, the flu vaccine is a hot topic. They don't – they often don't get it right, and yet everybody's taking it in and they're taking in, you know, all the adjuvants in it without the benefit because the strain is completely different because all it is is a guess at what's going to be going around that particular year. So I just, I just urge everybody to do their homework so they know why they're giving it. Yeah, and the vaccines destroy the immune system. If you read the book, it's called Healing is Voltage. Dr. Jerry Tennant actually presented at Autism One, not this past year, but the year before. And it's actually the terrain that we're worried about. We should be worried about, not the germ. And he totally blows away that germ theory. So the most important thing we can do is keep the immune system up. But for well, people... I was just going to say, for people in power to, to tell parents that their child has to have the flu vaccine or has to have the DTAP vaccine, which I've seen kids lose. They're not able to talk anymore in middle school. I've seen their eyes totally change where they can't focus anymore. I mean, it is, it's criminal really what's going on. And I, I hope everybody joins us at the CDC rally in Atlanta in a few weeks because everybody should be there. This is this is Christy. I just wanted to pipe in with one more piece of information on the flu mist. Um, I'm on the mm-hmm. uh, FDA um, website for the flu mist um, package insert, and um, in the post marketing experience section, um, it specifically lists exasperation of symptoms of mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, specifically Lee syndrome. So I, would, I, I, I agree with Alyssa. I think everybody needs to do their homework. I, I highly encourage everyone yeah. to read the package insert before you get a vaccination because this is not the information that a pediatrician or any doctor is required to give you. They're only required to give you a vaccine information sheet that kind of glosses over or kind of gives you the 50,000-foot level overview of the vaccination, and the package insert um, has a lot more detail. Uh, Christy, thank you for looking that up. That's very interesting because in in my youngest son's whole genome, what came out was secondary Lee's muta- mutation. Not a primary, but a secondary. So that's really interesting. Just to correct everybody, it is, yeah. it is post-marketing experience. So it comes with a disclaimer that these events have been spontaneously reported during post-approval use of flu mist. So this doesn't mean that they came up during clinical trials. This was after the flu mist was already on the market, and these were reported afterwards. But um, it's still listed. It's still listed, and I think um, until somebody studies it, we're not going to know. Until somebody does a clinical trial around exasperation of mitochondrial disease leaf syndrome with the flu mist vaccine, we're not going to know definitively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have a real, is, oh, go ahead. This is Marianne. I just have a real statement to make it some way back, but I 
I became disabled um, one month after the flu shot, and I was a pediatric nurse prior to that. And nobody believes that there's any correlation, but I feel like there is. And also, I've noticed that as my son, even into adulthood, um, when he gets a flu shot, his um, he has some has had mild like motor verbal type throat clearing tics since he was in middle school, and when he gets the shot, they get a lot worse for a while, and then they they slowly go away. So I I, I don't know if that's of interest, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, I, I, just, um, I just had one. Go ahead, Mary Beth. I just I'm listening to all the stories and. Our household also had a shot-related very large decline in my daughter, and that has actually led us on the mitochondrial disease path. But I also have just, like, through my life, even with my parents and their parents, have realized that it sounds like so many people hold a lot of guilt for, I shouldn't have done this, I should have done that, I didn't know about this. And I just hope that you guys can get through that guilt because it's not very helpful, and but it's a big mom thing, I know. And at the time of this decision-making, you really did have the best interest of your child at hand, and you made decisions based, at, with, based on the information you had at hand. And it's, I just don't, I feel bad if you beat yourself up for something when you were doing your best job and doing a good job. You just didn't have all the facts. Who knew that this one shot was going to really change the course of this person's life or whatever. You're you're still have, doing the best you can now and then, and now you're more informed, but it doesn't really mean that you did something wrong in the first place. Um, thanks for that, um, Mary Beth. I agree with you. And, um, and everybody, it's a couple minutes after two, so I am going to wrap us up. I just want to thank all of you for participating today, not only... Alyssa, Christine, Christy, Mary Beth, and Kathy, who really were instrumental in contributing to the discussion today, but all of you who participated and asked questions, and even if you were just listening, um, I hope that it was helpful for you. We did record today's call, so I'll add it to the iTunes podcast library and um, encourage you to go read more about the toxicity. Um, again, if you just search toxicity on the website or autism toxicity, you can find those um, links to previous discussions as well. Um, ladies, thank you everyone so much again. And um, again, if you send an email to Alyssa at autism at mitoaction.org, she'll be sure to add you to her autism email list so that you can get updates about these calls and other related um, pieces of, you know, interesting information as we come across it. Thank you, everyone, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.